Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Ladies and gentlemen, this is episode 33, and today I have Richard Tatum. Richard Tatum is a retired United States Air Force colonel with 30 years of experience on both active duty and in the reserve as a leader, educator, facilitator, and aviator. Now a professional facilitator, coach, and educator, Richard specializes in helping individuals and organizations become better versions of themselves, because better people and better organizations perform better, both in and out of the work environment. His work focuses on helping people to enhance their commitment to personal improvement. Welcome to the Blue Grid Podcast, Richard. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Tell us about yourself. Tell the listeners about what you do. My last assignment in the United States Air Force was actually with an organization called the Profession of Arms Center of Excellence. It was a leadership education-oriented organization. But what we really try to do is focus on a unique aspect of leadership education and maybe helping people come to the realization that I just might be part of the problem in my problems, that maybe I am to some degree the problem in, in the problems that I have in life. And once we can kind of have that self-awareness and admit that to ourselves, things tend to get a little bit better because we've actually determined reality as it is and gotten to the root of the problem. There is the psychological concept of what we call the fundamental attribution error, whereas when other people do things that we perceive as bad, we might judge them as bad people. But when we do things that are bad, we kind of give ourselves an excuse, right? Well, I had good intentions. It didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. I didn't have enough information. I really meant to do the right thing. It just didn't work out the way I was thinking it was going to. But we have to kind of realize that that maybe there is an element of what we might call badness in each of us and that we have to find that. And that's where we start from a point to make some improvements. Can I jump right into your story? You lost your son to suicide in 2014. Could you describe what happened? Yes, I'd be more than willing to talk about that. He was 19 years old. His story could uh, be very long. I will give you the highlights of it. His mother and I divorced when he was five, but we ended up having a decent relationship. And so we were able to kind of co-parent him. He finished high school from a small private school, had very good grades, very good teacher recommendations, was the lead in his school musical, very well liked. And he ended up going to Pepperdine University, which is a pretty good school out in California, Malibu, and, you know, about 10,000 people a year apply and about 1,000 get in. So, you know, unless you're a certain kind of person with a certain kind of character and a certain kind of academic achievement, you don't get into that school. So he goes out there and the first semester seems to go pretty well for him. He joins 
choirs on campus. He actually makes the Pepperdine Traveling Choir, which is an accomplishment for a freshman. Usually freshmen don't make that choir. So he has a good group of friends. He joins a fraternity. But unfortunately, during his second semester of his freshman year, he kind of got tied in with a group of young adults on campus who were more into partying and having a good time than they were in kind of making themselves better people by taking advantage of all the great opportunities in university. He also got into a romantic relationship with a young lady who maybe didn't treat him as well as she should have. Eventually, the partying, the guys that were there to have a good time, there was partying, there were drugs, there were alcohol, there was a failed romantic relationship. There was some legalized marijuana that was involved in this process. And eventually, it just became overwhelming for him. And on the 23rd of November, 2014, in an apartment off campus, somewhere between about midnight and five in the morning, he took his own life. So that's what happened there. Did you ever imagine that he was in this much pain and trouble to take his own life? And you describe somebody who is fairly successful academically and socially, was you know accepted to a very prestigious school. Did you see any of this coming your way? Again, and going back to that comment I made about maybe we have some blind spots in ourselves that we need to look at, I had a sense that something was wrong. But I believed it had to do more with, well, he's being kind of lazy. He's just being a typical, you know, late teen. High school was easy for him. Now he's at a really top rate university. He's having to work hard. He's just going to have to kind of pull up his own bootstraps, you know, and this is life. And he really didn't have too many struggles in the sense that he had my GI Bill. So he didn't have to necessarily, you know, have a full time job to pay for college or anything. And I just figured this was a maturing process that. He was becoming an adult and that life was stressful for him. But hey, that's what happens when you move out of your parents' house and you move into the real world as an adult. So I knew that he was under stress and I could see that maybe he wasn't doing as well as he could have. But I never imagined that things were going to get to the point where he would take his own life. I don't remember if it was in conversation between you and I or I listened in the podcast, but you did mention that prior to him deciding to take his life, he interrupted communications between you and the family and then you really weren't talking that is correct so you know you get into a situation where i'm dad and you're a son and you have a a moral obligation to communicate with me your father because look at all the great things that i've done for you and you've got my gi bill and i'm paying your cell phone and your car insurance. And so it kind of became a battle of the will, so to speak, you know, as I kept reminding him that he owed me certain actions of communication and respect. And then when he didn't communicate with me, that just validated my idea that, well, he actually is kind of disrespectful and lazy. And if he were a good son, he wouldn't be acting like that. But really what was going on is he was just digging his own hole deeper and deeper and me harassing him and pounding on him about his moral and ethical responsibilities to me as his father probably just turned him off from me. If you had a magic wand, what would you have done differently if you could go back? There's a phrase that I like to use when I was working at Pace, and I heard it on a radio maybe 15 years ago. And so I don't know the person who came up with the quote, but the quote is something like this Our worst friends are those who are more concerned about our comfort and their own comfort 
than they are about our character and our well-being. And I really got to the point with him where I was like, well, you know, it's in November. He's probably studying for finals. I'm not going to really worry about this situation right now. I don't want to put any more pressure on him when he comes home for Christmas. Then we'll have a real heart to heart, come to Jesus kind of chat. And so I really became more concerned about not putting pressure on him and not causing our relationship to become any worse which was really me being concerned about his comfort. In retrospect, there are a few things that I could have done. For instance, there is a student in crisis program on campus where anybody can pick up a phone and say, hey, you know, I believe that student X is in some type of crisis, maybe alcohol or drugs or suicidal or something like that, and they have a team on campus that will go and check on that person. That might have been a good idea. I could have tried to communicate maybe with some of his friends that I saw on Facebook to find out what was going on, or maybe get some more information about that type of stuff. So instead of becoming emotional about it and angry and just pounding on him, like I said, it doesn't mean that what he was doing was right. He wasn't acting correctly. He wasn't acting in a morally responsible way. But me focusing on that instead of what I could do to make things better kept me from being able to see opportunities where I might have been able to get him the help that he needed. How has this event impacted your relationship with your family, with God, with others around you, maybe with yourself? Yes. What it made me realize is, again, going back to that first point that I made, that I'm maybe not as good of a person as I think I am. One of my favorite psychologists I listened to is a gentleman named Jordan Peterson. And I remember he came up with this idea one time. He said, A few years ago, I was thinking to myself about whether I was a good person or not. And I thought, I have no reason to believe that I'm a good person. As a matter of fact, I'm probably a moderately bad person. He said, now that's a long way from being a really bad person, but it's also a really long way from being a really good person. And it takes hard work and dedication to work on ourselves to become what we might call a really good person. And, you know, here I was, I'd been an airline pilot. I was a colonel in the Air Force. I was moving up. Things were going well for me. People would tell me how accomplished I was. And, you know, okay, I'm I'm not perfect, but who is? But, hey, I kind of got it going on. And then when you have something like that happen, it's kind of like the hammer falling on top of your head and waking you up to, wow, you probably are not as good and wise and smart and intelligent and perceptive as you think you are. So when that happened, it made me reevaluate all the relationships with the people around me, my spouse, my friends, my family. Like, well, how do I treat these people? Am I really there for them to try and help them become better people? Or am I just using them to fulfill some type of emotional needs or physical needs or financial needs or whatever it is that I have to make my career go better, to get a promotion? And or when I came to that realization that I probably used people as objects, even my son, right? I was trying to get him to treat me appropriately so I could, I guess, validate myself as a father and as a man. That was a big eye-opener. And since then, my relationships have been better because I'm concerned about the needs, objectives, and challenges of other people, along with my own, while not seeing them as just objects to be used in my life to make my life better. His suicide has taken you on an unexpected journey. Can you tell us more about what you started telling and kind of reflection and changing the way you're treating people around you? I've always been a humanities major student by trade. And you know, when I say the humanities, I mean philosophy, literature, history, some foreign language, things like that. And so I kind of understood 
that aspect of the human condition, right and wrong, ethics, some historical perspective on the Western intellectual tradition. But when this event happened, and then I went to PACE, the Professional Arms Center of Excellence, I really got into the study of psychology, specifically things like in-group psychology and neurobiology and what's going on in our brain and how that's affecting the actions that we take. And so that sent me on a journey to understand that it's all well and good to have an understanding of philosophy, which can tell us right from wrong, maybe, and some ethical training. But if we really want to understand ourselves as human beings and why we do the things that we want to do, we have to have psychological understanding of ourselves and other human beings, as well as even some rudimentary knowledge of neurobiology about chemicals like dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin in our brain. So I really feel like this has sent me on a journey to have a more complete understanding of why I do the things that I do and why other people do the things that they do. And then it also, I am a person of faith. It actually increased my faith. A quick story there is when I was at Pepperdine University. And I think we'll pass on that story right now. We'll just continue on to the next question. No, no, no. Tell us the story now. (laughs) What happened? The story is, is that I was at Pepperdine University and they had graciously put me up in their hotel on campus. I had to go out there to obviously take care of some logistical things to go along with my son's death. And at the Pepperdine campus, it's on a mountainside and the hotel is up on the side of a mountain and it looks out over the Pacific Ocean and it's really beautiful and there's a garden there. So in the morning, I got up very early. The first night that I'd been there, I wasn't able to sleep very well, as you might imagine. And so I was walking out of the front of the hotel to go out to that garden as the sun was rising there over the Pacific Ocean. And I had this thought, and the thought was, well, God, you know, you said you'd never leave us or forsake us as human beings. So it would be a good idea for you to show up about right now. And then the next thought that came into my brain was, well, Rich, I'm here. And I guess now you too know what it feels like to lose a son. And that's kind of all I have to say about that. (laughs) Yeah. In a situation like that, you can get mad at God and say, why did this happen? Why did you let this happen? If you're all powerful and almighty, you could have given me more insight and help my son. You could have, you know, not let the, the mechanism that my son used to take his own life work. You could have had somebody, his girlfriend show up two hours earlier than she did. And when you know, if she just showed up two hours earlier, maybe he still would have been alive and she could save him. But she's actually the one who found him. You can go down that road. But my faith and my theological study tells me, as Christ said, you will have troubles in this world, but fear not, I am with you. So I either believe that or I don't. And I do. And so what that helped me do then was connect with other people of faith, connect deeper with my church, maybe improve my prayer life. And then all those things helped me to understand that I will have troubles in this life, but fear not, I'm with you. So that's how it increased and improved my faith. In your interviews, you obviously spoke about this publicly a few times. You've mentioned that Stockdale's life inspired you, and like many of us, it has. And you discuss his attempted suicide. Can you talk about that and how you connected to seeking help? Yes. Yeah, so for those of us who don't know who Admiral James Stockdale was, he's passed on, I believe, in 2005 is when he passed on. But he was the senior POW in the Vietnamese prison of war camps during the Vietnam War. 
spent 2,767 days in those camps. When he was released and came home, he became a professor. At one point, he was the president of the Citadel, ended up being a fellow at the Hoover Institution out of Stanford. And then he was actually the vice presidential candidate with Roth Perot way back in the early 90s. And so what we can learn from this man's life is here is a guy who, you know, if you're looking for the quintessential example of someone with grit that had personal grit, this guy had it. I mean, he probably has more grit than you and me and the hundred people that we know around us. And yet what people don't know is he actually got to a point where he did try to take his own life after being in the prisoner war camp for a number of years and facing isolation and being in a torture chamber. One night, he just said, I've kind of had enough. I I really have kind of run out of my own personal grit, so to speak. And he smashed the windows in his cell, took the pieces of glass from the smashed window, slit his own wrists, and laid down to bleed out and die. So what happens at that point is a Vietnamese guard comes by. He sees what happens. They call the medics. They come in, and they save his life. And we might think, well, that was really nice of those North Vietnamese people, but it really had nothing to do with whether Jim Stockdale as a human being lived or died. What they didn't want was bad press because Jim Stockdale's wife, Sybil, recently, within like the last week, had been in Paris demanding that the North Vietnamese treat their prisoners better. And the last thing that the North Vietnamese needed was Sybil's husband, Jim Stockdale, to end up dead. And so the lesson there is that no matter how much personal grit we think we have or how strong we think we are, we all can get to the end of that rope, so to speak. And unless we have someone there, unless we've taken the personal responsibility to cultivate friendships and to cultivate relationships, and we have the courage to admit when we are in a bad spot, everybody can get to the end of the rope. If Jim Stockdale can get to the end of it, everybody can get to the end of it. So roll forward into 1980, Jim Stockdale, he comes home in 72, I believe. And so 1980, he's giving a commencement address at a university. And one of the main points that he makes is, he says, people often ask me, what's the number one lesson that I learned out of that prisoner of war experience? And you might think it's something like, well, you have to have personal grit, or you have to you know, have good physical endurance when you get into that situation so you can endure. You have to be mentally tough. And I think Jim Stockdale would concur that all that is important and we need to develop those characteristics. But he said the one lesson that I learned is that I am my brother's keeper. And what got them through those tough times in the prisoner of war camp, when they got to the end of their personal grit rope, was their brothers, their fellow prisoners, who would say things as one was getting hauled off to be tortured. They would holler, I love you, man. I'm here for you. And they all knew that they had that emotional support and that their friendships were there for them to get through those difficult situations. And to me, that's exactly the wingman's concept. You know, to make it a little more gender neutral, I think our motto ought to be, I am my wingman's keeper. You talk about context also influencing our choices and our behavior. And you mentioned Philip Zimbardo, and he talks about how perfectly normal people when placed in bad situations, if you call them bad barrel, end up becoming bad barrel themselves and act like bad apples. He's very much against the idea of 
there's just this one bad apple that you need to pick out and destroy that people, whenever they're in those bad situations, end up emulating the behavior of the rest of the barrel. And I'm curious to know how context in the military, so that if, if you think of the military as the barrel related to grit, and especially in light of suicide rates. So if you think of the military as the barrel, how does it relate to grit and or suicide rates? So the idea here is that in-group psychology tells us that when we join a group of people, if we want to stay in that group of people, we have to start conforming to the norms and the standards of that organization. Otherwise, the organization will kick us out because we're not conforming to the norms and the standards of those of that organization. So, you know, in the Air Force, we have our core values, integrity, first service before self-excellence and all we do. If we join in a sub-in-group of people that do not ascribe to those core values, and along with that would be, you know, well, excellence. Excellence is not abusing alcohol. Excellence is not sexual abuse. Excellence is not in any way, shape, or form being involved in some type of drugs. Excellence is not allowing our wingmen to abuse themselves to the point where they are no longer able to do the mission. So this idea of grit in the military comes from making sure that we are aligning ourselves with people who are in line with the core values so that when we get to the point where we are struggling ethically with a decision or we're struggling psychologically, that we have developed a solid core in-group around us to whom we can go for help, or if we're in such a deep hole that we can't even see that we're in it, that they will hopefully be more concerned about our character than our comfort, and they will reach down in that hole and offer us a helping hand. A quick story there is I gave one of my leadership presentations from PACE at an Air Force base, and there was about 600 people in the audience in a theater, and the next evening I gave a shorter version of the presentation to the spouses on the Air Force base. And at the end of that second presentation to the spouses, the wing commander's wife, I looked at her, she was, you know, the senior spouse in the room. And I said, do you have anything to say, ma'am? And she started crying. I'm always a little concerned when that happens because I know something very emotional is going to happen. And so what happened was she said, you know, Rich, I got to tell you a story. She said, yesterday after your presentation, and I tell my son's story during my presentations, she said a young female staff sergeant on base called me and said that she was concerned about one of her female friends who was acting potentially in a self-destructive way, but she didn't want to get this person in trouble or impact her career negatively. And the wing commander's wife said, well, are you more concerned about a career or are you more concerned about her life? And what happened was, is there was a professional intervention for the sergeant's friend and the person was given help and is on a much better path. See, that's the idea of grit. It's this idea that I have developed have a personal responsibility, develop the core group of people around me that are in line with the core values so that if I have difficulties, I can go to them for guidance and wisdom so that they can help me pull out of the hole if I get so deep in the hole that I can't get myself out. And so that if I see other people digging their own holes, I can take the shovel out of their hands. I love the phrase, I'm quoting you, show me the people you're hanging out with, show me the books you're reading, and show me the substances you're putting into your body, and I will show you where you'll be in five years. Yes, that is very good. I got part of that idea from a gentleman, Colonel Retired 
Jeff Smith, who was the first director of Pace, and he said, show me the, the people you're hanging out with, show me the books that you're reading, and I'll show you the type of person you'll be in five years. And then through my son's experience, I also added, show me the substances that you're putting in your body because they can alter brain chemistry in ways that make us act in, in very different ways. But yes, these influences that we have around us will psychologically and neurobiologically program our brains in certain ways to react to certain stimuli. You also discuss the role of your personal responsibility in becoming resilient. Could you talk about that? Yes. Yeah, so we've hit on a little bit anyway, but if you remember the four pillars of resiliency, and it's been a couple of years now, so maybe if I don't get all four of them right, but it was physical, mental, spiritual, and social. Are those the four pillars of resiliency that we talk about? Did I get mm-hmm. that right? I think you did. So physical, spiritual, social, and mental, right? So let's just start with physical. You know, when you go through tough times in life, whether it be a suicide of a family member or whatever that might be, where we have sickness in the family, we're just not liking our job, we have to maintain ourselves in good physical condition. Those things that, you know, like a divorce or a suicide of someone close or we lost a job, those are what we might call emotional wounds. It's not like someone took a knife and cut us, but it's an emotional wound. Now, when we get a physical wound, let's say that we have a knee replacement or something like that. There is a very specific physical rehabilitation procedure that we must go through to make that wound better. And in the same way, both physically and mentally, we have to really be diligent about putting together not only a physical regime to eat correctly, to maintain good exercise, keep us physically healthy. We also need to put together with professional help, I would suggest some type of mental regime, whether it's with a counselor or a priest. We make sure that we have friends that are taking us out and keeping us social. There's a very good TED talk called The Lethality of Loneliness by a professor named John Cassiopo, who studied loneliness for 25 years. And he said, the antidote to loneliness, and that tends to be what happens when we go through these difficult times in our life often. So the antidote is very simple. Close friends with whom we can communicate on a deep level, uh, active social life with friends and family so that we have activities that are fun to do, and then meaningful work to do so that we feel like we're moving forward in life and contributing to other human beings. That idea of helping other human beings actually neurobiologically makes our brain feel a whole lot better. So we have a personal responsibility to develop those attributes. And then if you are a person of faith, whatever your faith might be, you know, relying on that, kind of like I already told you, as I relied on it during my tragedy, is also a component. So we have a personal responsibility. And that responsibility is not just, as I said, me, myself, and I doing my own thing. It's developing those relationships and seeking help with friends and professionals to put together a care plan for rehabilitation, just as we would if we had a knee surgery or some type of other physical wound that required physical rehabilitation. I've never heard this before, and I don't know why. I've done this work for a long time, but I've never thought of comparing emotional wound and recovery for an emotional wound to physical therapy, something that you would do for your body when you're injured physically and you would do kind of a progressive recovery, but you have to exercise in order to come back to the baseline functioning. I don't know, that never occurred to me that you could do the same for emotional health. 
And it doesn't necessarily have to be counseling. That could be self-discovery, reading, you're watching something, you're talking to other people. But having a plan is actually a really good comparison. Yes, I agree with you 100%. And I noticed that, that I, I really was diligent, especially in the months right after my son's suicide, I, I really became diligent about making sure that I worked out. And my wife is into whole food, plant-based eating. So she was very diligent about making sure I had a good diet. And then I had a good group of friends. I was working at a Matchcom headquarters and they were able to surround me on a daily basis and really support me. And my family, even though they live far away from me, they're helping me too. My brother flew out to Pepperdine University with me during that first week. He kind of took care of a lot of the administrivia, you might say, where I was trying to maintain my mental composure during all of that. So it is this idea, it's kind of like Stockdale in the prison, right? It's Those guys wouldn't have survived unless they had built up this kind of what you might call social resilience, we maybe call it social capital, so that when they got into difficult situations, they were able to rely on each other to fill in the gaps when they got to the end of their own grit rope, so to speak. I also really like the idea, and I think you're mentioning this concept of almost like prophylactics, right? That you have this social capital or you develop emotional, spiritual, physical resiliency prior to this emotional wound or something bad happening that you don't expect to happen. So that whenever that does happen, you are fit in many ways to survive that. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, think about if we were going to go out and run a marathon, it would be a bad plan to just say, well, you know, the marathon's a year out. And what I'll do is I'll just run, I don't know, I'll run a mile a day every once in a while. This week I'll run a couple miles. Next week I'm probably going to take a week off because eh, I don't feel like running. And, you know, next month I'll make sure that I, no, that's, that's not going to work. You're going to get to the day of the marathon and you're not going to be ready for it. We never know when these, what might we call them, emotional marathons are going to show up in our life, right? These crises where it's going to take a marathon type effort to get through them. And unless we have prepared ourselves in the time prior to that, it's too late when you're at the starting line of the marathon to say, okay, now I'm really going to do what I have to do to get ready for this. Those habit patterns of mental fitness, physical fitness, spiritual fitness, if that's something that we choose to do, we run a great risk of not successfully running that emotional marathon. Mm -hmm. Did you have a plan after you lost your son? Yes, I did. As I talked about, I really focused on my diet with my wife, who's into the whole food plant-based eating. I very much focused on making sure that I was exercising 30 to 45 minutes, three to four days a week. And I was very diligent about that. I could honestly say that I did that. I was very diligent on making sure that I purposely organized social events and did not turn down social events to which I was invited so that I could literally go and get the neurochemical nourishment that our brains need by healthy interaction with other people. And so in the first few months after my son's death, I was very diligent about that. And I also asked my wingmen, the people who were supporting me, to help me with those things. Like, you know, my wife, make sure that I'm eating correctly and make sure that I'm exercising. And, you know, my friends, make sure that if you see me slipping away from this plan that we've kind of talked about and, and put together, get me back on the right track. Be more concerned about my well being than my comfort. I'm giving you the permission to be concerned about my well-being and my character. And maybe that's an important point too, right? Is that going to people and telling them, look, I authorize you to tell me 
when you don't feel that I am doing things that are in my own best interest and I'm being self-destructive. Now, I wouldn't give that permission to everybody, but to those with whom we have cultivated a close and trusting relationship, we should give that permission to them and they should also hopefully be willing to give that permission back to us. You made an interesting comment in one of your teachings, one of your interviews, that being resilient takes dedication. And that's exactly what you're describing, you know, scheduling exercising sessions for 40, 45 minutes, three, four times a week that takes dedication while you're grieving. And I wonder if people feel a lack of dedication when they feel broken as a result of their emotional wound. How do you recommend they find dedication? Well, there are a couple things there. Number one is I've really come to believe that accountability partners in life are extremely important, even if we're not necessarily in a crisis situation. And one kind of physiological concept is this idea of the three primary motivations of mammals, right? Seek pleasure, avoid pain, and conserve energy. Mm -hmm. So imagine this pride of lions, right? They're out on the Serengeti. They're not out all day running around chasing, you know, zebras and gazelles or whatever they do. They get up and hunt when they feel hungry and they need to eat the rest of the day. They just kind of hang around in the shade because they're trying to conserve energy. They might play with each other a little bit, you know, to, to get some pleasure there, but basically they're just kind of hanging out. So unless there's something that's really going to force those lions to go expend some energy, they're just going to seek pleasure, maybe play a little bit, stand in the shade, you know, avoid pain. It's very dangerous to go out and chase these gazelles and zebras and things like that. They're not going to go out and risk their physical well-being unless they have to. Then they just conserve energy. So the accountability partner is the one who says, when you get up at 6.30 in the morning and you're like, eh, I don't really feel like going out and doing that run. The accountability partner is the one who texts you and says, hey, it's 6.30. Why aren't you out on the track with me? Again, remember we talked about building up that social capital, that social resilience with people who can trust us. And hopefully we don't want to generally let people down in our lives. I mean, that actually makes us feel bad about ourselves and tends to move us out of an in-group if people can't trust us. So having these accountability partners, I think, is really key. Accountability partner can be that friend who ensures that he or she actually gets with you and exercises with you because they need exercise too. Accountability partner can be the fact that I have scheduled my mental health counseling sessions. They're on my calendar for the next two months, every week or every two weeks, or with my priest or my pastor, whoever that might be. Or, you know, I'm looking for social opportunities. I've made sure that I've joined the biking club or the hiking club or the motorcycle club or whatever. And I'm going to go to that. And I'm telling the people in that club, if I don't show up, I want you to come knock on my door and yank me out and take me to it. Right. So this idea of accountability partner is, I think, very key because we're all mammals. And that seek pleasure, avoid pain, conserve energy thing. We're really coming to a play when we get down and depressed and we don't have the energy to do the things that we need to do to make us better. There's actually on a stress curve, right? You know, if you have no stress on the very far left of the curve, that's not good. But there's a point at the top of a stress curve. And if you have too much stress on the right side of the curve, that's not bad there. There's actually a point called eustress, which is an optimal amount of stress that human beings should be under to move them forward in life, to keep helping them become better physically, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And so putting ourselves under a little bit of stress of exercising, counseling, meeting with our pastor, meeting with our friends and having social events is that stress that is good stress that helps us move forward and go through that emotional 
healing plan process that we talked about earlier. Do you feel like your plan has worked? Yes, it has. I am a better, a much better human being today than I was five years ago. It, it is a shame that it took the death of my son to set me on that track. If we have to go through the fire, so to speak, the crucible, as Jim Stockdale would say, that we've prepared ourselves to run that emotional marathon that we're going to have to run because to get to the starting line of that marathon and you haven't trained yourself in the areas that you need to train yourself with grit and all those resiliency aspects that we talked about, you're probably not going to make it to the end of the marathon. Thank you for that. And I ask of all my guests, a question is, what do you recommend to service members who are struggling with difficult times at this moment? My first recommendation is to have the personal courage and to realize that it's actually more courageous to seek help than to stay isolated and to stay silent. Because you know, especially in the military, we have this idea we're supposed to be strong and tough and you know, personally responsible and handle our problems and not whine and not complain. And that is generally true. But as Aristotle said, any virtue can be taken to an extreme where it becomes a vice. But if we're having feelings of isolation, suicidal ideations, just a general feeling of depression and loneliness, that gentleman that John Cassiopo, that professor I talked about, John Cassiopo, he says, when we're hungry, it's the body telling us to get something to eat. When we're thirsty, it's the body telling us to get something to drink. And when we're lonely, it's our body telling us that we need healthy social interactions. The first step and the main step is to seek out help with a counselor, with a pastor, with professionals that are educated in this realm of I need a plan. I need to put together a plan. I need a mental health plan. I need a physical workout plan. We have the Health and Wellness Center. They would love to help people put together a physical wellness plan to get better and to take that personal responsibility and then to find that accountability partner that is going to hold us to keeping to our plan. And some people say, well, I don't have maybe friends or I feel kind of isolated. I don't know anybody. Then go to your first sergeant, go to your commander. Go to your flight commander. There are people out there that are willing and able to be your wingman. We just have to have the personal courage and initiative to go find them. So the main point there is it's actually more courageous to admit that we are struggling and need help than to stay silent and try and tough it out. Thank you so much for that answer. I just finished the book, almost finished the book. It's called Resilience, exactly what it's called, Resilience by Eric Greitens. It's so well written. And he describes a situation in which some people may feel that they are unable even to get out of bed. So they'll say, I can't even get out of bed in the morning, right? It takes me hours to get out of bed until the evening. And so he kind of walks you through this scenario. Well, can you move your toe? Can you move your finger? Can you move your foot? Can you move both of your feet? Could you now move your legs maybe just a little? Maybe can you put one of your legs on the ground? And maybe can you try to sit up? Here it is. You're out of bed. You got out of bed now. And so I think for people who just feel so distraught that they're unable to take responsibility to seek help, it's just those little steps, right? That maybe it's just a little text, you know, a short text to somebody that they know. Maybe it's 
joining a group. Maybe it's just looking up a group in the area, something, you know, where they can engage in social activities. But those little steps, little actions can create a bigger ripple effect in the long run. It's actually good for the brain to accomplish little things. Jordan Peterson, again, he'll say, you know, try to get up and just make your bed. Mm -hmm. Try to make the little environment around you just a little bit better. And when that happens and you accomplish that, the brain will say, that's good. And now I'm going to take it up to the next level. Well, could I straighten up my room a little bit? Could I pick up these clothes that have been laying on the floor for a little while? And he says that the cumulative effect of little wins, little baby steps, as you said, actually trains the brain to be more healthy and to want to do more and, and to achieve more. And so, like you said, it's just the little baby steps. When the brain sees success, it learns from that. That felt good. It learns from that and it wants to do more of it. So yes, I would concur with the analysis that you just made as well as that story in the book that you mentioned. And actually, really, really good book. I think you'll enjoy it if you have a chance to read. It's just called Resilience and it's Eric Greisman, I think. And he's a former Navy SEAL and so well-written. Thank you so much for this time. I really appreciate your willingness to share your story and your wisdom with the audience. Well, thank you, Anne. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. I'm always grateful for the opportunity and pleased to be able to work with my Air Force family. You know, once an airman, always an airman. So even though I'm retired, I still even have, I don't have them on right now, but I usually wear my dog tags wherever I go. And so I'll always be a wingman. So thank you for the time today. And I hope that the opportunity that we had to chat will inspire someone else to have the courage if they're in a difficult situation to raise their hand to go to a first sergeant, to go to a commander, to go to a chaplain, to go to the mental health people and say, I'm not as good as a human being as I could be. I'm struggling and I need help. And that is the ultimate show of courageousness. Thank you. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's anna.v.fedotova.mil at mail.mil.